today I want to draw our attention to another virtue as we work through this series of virtues this, uh, this Advent season. And the virtue that I've chosen for today is fortitude. Fortitude. And you might not have expected that when you came here this morning. Maybe you were thinking uh, of something more conventional like peace or joy or love. Certainly they're more typical of the Advent season. But I have a reason for choosing fortitude today. It's interesting that when observations of Advent started within uh, the Christian church, perhaps about 1,500 years ago, uh, it was understood as a season of fasting. Christmas was a feast day to celebrate the birth of Jesus, so you would fast in leading up to the feast. Much like in Easter, there's, it's preceded by the traditional fast of Lent, a time of sober, repentant reflection. And of course, we still like the feast, but it's a little tougher sell on the fast these days. And um, interesting, too, just a sort of a cultural note, um, the most serious Advent tradition that I can find comes, perhaps unsurprisingly, out of the Ethiopian church. Uh, I'm always intrigued by the Ethiopian Orthodox church. They still put Christmas off until January. So if you were Ethiopian, you'd have to wait until uh, early January before you can celebrate Christmas. And they have a 40-day Advent season. And that season is uh, recognized by fasting, so that you're supposed to only eat one meal a day, and it has to be a vegan meal throughout that entire season. But don't worry, I'm not suggesting that we do that. I'm only showing the dramatic contrast that there is among a lot of different traditions and in Christian history. It's important for us to remember what the Bible says. Uh, Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, announces, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So dialing back on Christmas or sobering up, the Advent season is not a hill to die on. But I would like to draw our attention this morning to another hill where somebody did die. And you might be thinking I'm talking about the hill of Calvary, where Christ died. And certainly that's the most important hill, the most important person to ever die. But I'm going to draw our attention instead today to a different hill where somebody else died in the Bible. A little bit lesser recognized story, but one that really puts on full display this virtue of fortitude. Fortitude. But before we get to that story, I just want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40, because here we have the, the conclusion of the hall of faith. All these great uh, leaders recognized for their faith throughout the history of the Old Testament. And it comes to this conclusion in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. God, I I pray that you would help us in our study of your word today to understand more what this virtue of fortitude is and how you impart it to us in your perfect way. Help us to hear and receive from you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep a finger here in Hebrews 11 because we're going to come back to it at the very end of the message. But fortitude is... A great word. I like it. It's it's closely related to courage. But I like the English word fortitude, maybe better than the English word courage. It takes the word fortress and turns it into an attitude. So you take fortress plus attitude, you get fortitude. And and, and so it's this fortress-like attitude. And so when we read in, in Hebrews 11 about these prophets who suffered so much, They were mocked, they were imprisoned, they were tortured. It says they were even sawn in two. We're impressed by the fortitude, that fortress-like attitude that they had. And uh, some people just have a natural fortress-like attitude, don't they? It's just part of their personality. We, We might call that being stubborn. Fortitude isn't necessarily a a distinctly Christian virtue. In fact, all kinds of people have fortitude who don't necessarily follow Christ. Think about the professional athletes who work so hard to hone their skills or the people who just go to watch them. On days like yesterday when my two sons drove to Cleveland to watch a football game in Cleveland in the bitter cold. A lot of people can have fortitude For various things, mountain climbers, Arctic explorers, Navy SEALs, the kind of people who sail around the world in a a sailboat, their fortitude puts all of us to shame. But our focus today isn't on this fortitude in general, but on the fortitude of faith. I want us to see the importance of the fortitude of the Spirit. That's what I want to have. A fortitude like that of the prophets described here in in, in Hebrews 11, who who faced every hardship to the point of death. And let's consider where that kind of fortitude comes from, how God imparts it to each of us. Remember these Old Testament prophets, they died, 
They suffered and they died waiting for the Messiah to come. And today I want to turn our attention to another prophet who gave his life as well. Now, unlike these older prophets, this one um, does see Jesus. But he doesn't get to see what Jesus came to do. He never saw the risen Jesus. And so in this sense, he was in some ways like the prophets of the Old Testament. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to find the story of him here in Matthew chapter 14. And the one I'm talking about is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And here in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12, we, we see a story of fortitude. Fortitude of, of, of the life of John the Baptist um, and all that he went through. It takes place, interestingly enough, this story in Matthew 14, in a fortress, a very special fortress on the top of a mountain in Judea. Herod, the Tetrarch, is the, the kind of ruler of Judea in that region in that day. And part of his dominion there includes this mountain fortress. Archaeologists call it Makira or Mukawa. There's different ways of, of pronouncing it. But you can still visit there tonight. There's still a, uh, tonight, these, today, in these, this times, there's still a site there that, that, that uh, is being excavated on the top of this mountain where this fortress existed. It was one of the most uh, well-defended places in the entire region. It had huge walls. It had towers. It had cisterns within it so that rainwater could be collected, that it would be allowed to withstand long sieges. It was the ultimate mountain fortress. And at the heart of this mountain fortress was a prison, a dungeon of sorts. And in the midst of that dungeon was a man named John, John the Baptist. And it's believed that he spent around two years there in that prison. Let me begin here in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Thus ends the life of John the Baptist. John, like one of those others described in Hebrews 11, who had uh, such an important role in the early life of Jesus from the time of Jesus' birth. In fact, John was the cousin of Jesus, and he forms a bridge between the Old Testament prophets and the coming of Christ. And John's birth was miraculous. 
His parents were beyond childbearing age, yet they still hoped that God would bless them with a child. And John's father was a priest who receives a special message from the angel Gabriel announcing that he would have a son. We read about this in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. It says there, And there appeared to him, that is Zechariah, John's father, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist was called by God to prepare the way for Jesus and, and uh, to preach a message of repentance. And he lives a, a rough life, a tough life. He roughs it in the wilderness, and we find him described as wearing uh, camel's hair and, and uh, eating locusts and honey and... Um, he fearlessly calls the people of Israel to repent of their sins, to say the kingdom of heaven is near. The, the, the Messiah has come. And, and this great promise that Gabriel delivers to his father says that many will rejoice and be glad. There's great hope associated with John's life and, and ministry. And John was fearless. He, he was so fearless that he didn't have any partiality at all about who he pointed his finger of uh, repentance at. And he confronted Herod himself. Herod was known to be living immorally with his brother's wife. John publicly rebukes this, and this is what gets him in trouble. Herod is arrested. I'm not sorry, I'm sorry. John is arrested by Herod and put into this fortress prison of Makira. And, you know, he's locked up there for two years, probably wondering, is this for real? Is this how it's going to end? Is this what it was all about? In fact, Luke even tells us at one point that John had messengers sent to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you really the one who is to come? You get this sense that John is starting to maybe waver a little bit. Is he giving up hope? in this kingdom that he proclaimed. Locked up now for all these years in a dungeon, put there by a wicked and worldly despot. Instead of seeing the promised kingdom established, he gets his head chopped off, put on a platter, displayed for all to see. But fortitude... Fortitude is the unflagging determination to persevere in the face of discomfort, doubt, and even death. John is an example of this. 
His fortitude is forged through a life spent in the wilderness, and it carried him all the way through to the end. And yet it must have seemed to John and to those who loved him like perhaps he had failed. His disciples asked Jesus, are you in fact the one who is to come? The powers of this world crushed him like a bug. And from a human point of view, he ended his life in failure and defeat. Except for one thing, if you go back to Matthew chapter 14, you'll see it there. And that one thing is that uh, Herod was still afraid. Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 14 say, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. I love that picture of Herod fretting and fearful, thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. He can't escape the thought. So John's part in the story was finished. His work was accomplished even without him knowing it. And Jesus' own experience now from this point forward is going to mirror much of what John went through. He's going to also uh, get crosswise with the authorities. He's also going to be arrested. He's also going to be executed. But Jesus will rise again. And the death and evil that surround us will finally be defeated and so the challenge for us is in many ways the same as it was for John. It's a challenge of fortitude in the face of resistance, discomfort, doubt, and even death. Because we still wait that resurrection life uh, promised uh, physically. We experience it spiritually, but it's experienced through the infilling of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of fortitude. And um. Concern because fortitude is in short supply today when it relates to faith, for sure. It's so easy to check out on faith, to drift in and to drift out, to, to get excited and then to lose our enthusiasm. And certainly the numbers tell the story of the exodus of people from the church, particularly younger generations, telling us it's showing us that we're just not instilling the spiritual fortitude that is needed these days. And so where does it come from? How do we gain something of what John had? How do we challenge our children to learn this fortitude? Well, let's start with the fact that every virtue has its opposite. An opposite vice. And the, the vice that is opposite to fortitude, I'd say, is slothfulness. Slothfulness. The slothful are described in the Bible as sluggards. And I, I like that word as well. It gives you such a picture of what it is. The sluggard or the slothful. They just don't do much. They sit there. It reminds me of the news I saw a couple weeks ago. Uh, Oxford Dictionary, I guess every year, publishes their word of the year. And somehow they conduct some kind of survey or poll to get responses from the people to decide, okay, what's the word of the year going to be? And the word of the year for 2022, anybody see this? Some of you noticed or caught it. 
Goblin mode. Goblin mode. This is the word of the year for 2022. Um, What does it mean? Well, Oxford defines it as, quote, a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. And apparently this concept of goblin mode took off while people were in COVID lockdown and felt no need to get out, no need to do anything, no need to to show themselves to anyone. And so they just stay at home all day and uh, descend into this goblin-like existence. One writer describes it this way as, quote, spending the day in bed watching Netflix on mute while scrolling endlessly through social media, pouring the end of a bag of chips into your mouth, downing Eggo toaster oven waffles with hot sauce over the sink because you can't be bothered to put them on a plate. And they go on with further, but you get the idea. You know, goblin mode might be the epitome of human slothfulness. But there's also a spiritual form of goblin mode. Spiritual sloth is, I think, what should concern us the most. It's what ultimately kills. Rebecca DeYoung wrote a book called Glittering Vices, and in it she says that sloth has more to do with being lazy about love than with being lazy about work. And this is the mode that we can get into when we stop caring about the things of God, when we stop loving others and loving God as much as as we should and thinking more of ourselves. We indulge in the things that go against God's best. We waste our time and our effort on things that are meaningless. This goblin mode of the heart comes in when spiritual fortitude breaks down. It happens when we lose vision for what God wants of us, when we lose hope in what God has promised for us. I like the way Rusty Reno puts it. He says, pride may be the root of all evil, but in our day, the trunk, branches, and leaves of evil are characterized by a belief that moral responsibility, spiritual effort, and religious discipline are empty burdens, ineffective and archaic demands that cannot lead us forward. So what Reno is arguing here is that uh, sloth is really the critical sin of our age. Now, certainly pride is the great sin and pride is the root of all kinds of, of evil that we get ourselves into. But think about the trajectory that pride puts us on. Pride says the world's all about me. Life's all about me. I'm going to live to make myself happy and satisfied and comfortable. And so I'm just going to try to do as much as I can to, to keep it about me. But what happens? Well, we don't usually get too far down that road before we realize nobody's paying attention to me. This ain't working out. I might think it's all about me, but there's not much here. So we don't end there. Pride is not the terminal vice. It leads us to another vice, which is the vice of sloth. Sloth says, I just don't care. I'm just giving up. I'm just going to coast. And this is what really gets us. The goblin mode of the heart, of the spirit. And, you know, we all struggle with this. We all battle this. I get this. Just because I'm a pastor and it's my job to be a spiritual leader doesn't mean I don't still struggle like everyone 
else. But I'm consoled, at least, by the fact that even the early church fathers, who many of them lived very lives of fortitude, struggled also with the slothfulness of the Spirit. They considered it their biggest challenge. There were in ancient times many who would go out and live in the deserts, kind of like John the Baptist, to seek the Lord in prayer and uh, humble uh, sacrifice and service. But, but they wrote about the fact that when the noonday sun began to beat down on them and when they really got the hungriest and the most tired, that was when the temptation was the strongest to give in to apathy and to sloth. They needed an extra dose of grace to fight off the demon of apathy. And that's what we all need. And you know, it just doesn't work to beat yourself up, to say, I've got to knuckle down and try harder. And you know, we might be able to achieve some things that way for a while, but that's the world's way of fortitude. And, and maybe you can do it for, for, for a season. You get yourself in shape. You, you finish your degree. You earn that award at work. But you know, when this comes to the spiritual life, something more is needed. To have spiritual fortitude needs to come with a deeper embrace of the gospel. A deeper understanding of who Jesus is. A deeper understanding of the grace of God and the presence of God with us. And I think we see that on display in the life of John the Baptist. John is going to show us some things that I think can help as we think about this virtue of fortitude. I want to show you just two. And the first is this. John knew that God had a plan for his life. John hung on because he knew God had a plan for his life. I'm sure he grew up hearing those stories about his birth, the way the angel visited his father, the way his father was speechless for months on end after the announcement of the birth, that God had a special hand on John's life. And I'm sure that that knowledge gave him fortitude. And, and yet, for each of us, our births were not as dramatic. I don't know of anybody here who's had an angel announce your birth. But I suspect also that, uh, you know, your parents were not beyond childbearing age when you were born. Well, John, he had that going for him as well. Evidence that God was at work. But, but what about us? How do we know we're that important that God has a plan for our lives? Listen to me. Your being here and your being who you are is no less important than who John was and what God had for John's life. And I'm not saying this just to make you feel good, just to boost your self-esteem. Listen to the words of Jesus. Because remember, when John's disciples went to Jesus and said, Jesus, are you really the one? Are you the guy that, that, that we thought you were? Jesus answers with a, a lengthy explanation, but he concludes with these words. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. All right, so John, he's pretty important. We all know this. We understand his, his birth. But then look what Jesus says. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What he's saying is that John's miraculous birth, yeah, that's, that's pretty special. It made him important, but it's nothing compared to being born again. Once we're born again into God's kingdom, we have every reason to have fortitude to face any challenge. And so I ask you a simple question right now. Have you been born again? Do you understand that your life has been planned by God, that he has a purpose for you that will give you the strength and the fortitude you need to face any challenge, even death itself? Have you received that gift offered through Jesus Christ? We receive it when we turn from our old way, when we put our trust completely in Jesus, when we willingly place ourselves under the complete rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Even if that means getting our head chopped off by a so-called king like Herod. I can't say it any simpler than this. When Jesus is your king, you enter his kingdom and you become his child. And that's a hill to die on. That's a hill to die on. Jesus knew, I'm sorry, John knew, John knew that God had a plan for his life. And God has a plan for you as well. And I hope you know that today. Secondly, John knew that Jesus was with him. Even though he was in the prison, I think he knew that God's presence was there. That John had fortitude because he knew Jesus was with him. And when he started to doubt, he, he went to Jesus for assurance. And we also gain fortitude then when we go to Jesus, when we remember that he is with us. And to do this, I want to take you back now. I said we would do this. Back to Hebrews chapter 11. The, the hall of faith there. All of these uh, leaders who suffered so much Mocked, imprisoned, tortured, sawn in two. Leads to what? Well, go to chapter 12 of Hebrews. Because this is really the conclusion of, of, of the faith chapter in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these others who have gone before us, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. So the key to the Christian fortitude is made clear for us here. It is to fix our eyes on Jesus. I love this passage. I go to it often. Fix our eyes on Jesus. And what compelled Jesus? When we look to Jesus, what do we see? He says to us right there that it was for the joy that was set before him. It was the joy that was set before him. 
The reason we lose heart, the reason we lose our fortitude, the reason we slip into spiritual goblin mode is the failure to see the joy that is set before us. So this whole message ultimately is about joy after all. The joy that is yet to come. We wait for it. We anticipate it. Now we may suffer, we may struggle, we may have to endure, but the joy that is set before us, we can, in, can pursue and endure whatever challenge or struggle may be in our way. We will not grow weary, we will not lose heart, because Jesus is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you have shown us your power at work in the life of John the Baptist. And, and Lord, we, we cannot imagine what he struggled or how he endured, but you gave him the fortitude to persevere. And God, I pray that by your grace, you would help us to persevere as well. Help us to see that you have called us, that you have a plan for us, that you have given us a vision for our lives, that, uh, that Jesus Christ, as we fix our eyes on him, shows us the joy and shows us the way. Lord, call us, we pray. Renew us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.